Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome to another episode of That's Truth. I'm Nathan Owens and I'm in the studios of the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse on the island of Antigua. We are continuing tonight with our COVID-19 setup. And that means that Pastor Murphy is not in the studio, but he is on the phone line calling from his from his study. Pastor, good evening. Uh, good evening, Brother Nathan. Good evening to those who might be listening to the program this evening. Now, Pastor, before we get to our topic tonight, I have a number of questions. And the first one I want to draw back from last week. You asked me to bring this one back up uh, as, after you had some time to study it or to put more thought into it. A listener last week from Antigua via WhatsApp referred to Psalm 82, verse 6, which says, I have said, ye are gods. And all of you are children of the Most High. Pastor, is that verse declaring us all to be divine beings? No. Uh, that's the reason why I thought we need to do a little bit more study, because there are people who take a passage like that, not looking at the context, and not looking at the background to the psalm or the particular biblical passage, and come to a conclusion uh, that are alien to Scripture. As a matter of fact, these are one of the verses that New Age people would use um, uh, some people who are into the occult, some of the cults, um, even the Word of Faith movement. Uh, there's those among the Word of Faith movement that claim that believers are little gods. Now, when you come to this Psalm, Psalm 86, and the word that is used there is the word Elohim. And it is the word that's normally translated in the Old Testament for God. But it is not only translated God in the Old Testament. Uh, it's, it's a word that is also translated uh, by judges, uh, like a judge that would assume the role of, of a, a, a moral authority, making judgment on issues and matters. And I'll show you that in a few verses of Scripture shortly. But that is where a word is defined not just by its etymology, what it, it, it means in going back to the Hebrew and looking at um, the derivative of the word, a word is defined by how it is used, the context in which it is used. That's how you to define a word. Now, this same word, by the way, that is translated here um, in Psalm 86, verse, uh, verse six, 82, verse 6, is also found in Exodus chapter 21, verse 6. Could you read that for the audience, please? Exodus uh, 21, 6, Exodus 22, 8, Exodus 22, 9. You'll find it there. The same word is used. But it's yeah. interesting how it's translated in those verses. Exodus 21, 6 says, Then his master shall bring him unto the judges. He shall also bring him to the door or unto the doorpost. 
and his master shall bore his ear. Yeah, yeah that, that has to do, if you read the, the whole passage, it has to do with a person who is a, uh, a servant or slave, and he doesn't want to leave the master. He wants to remain with the master. His ear is bored, bored, and then all uh, to decide to the post. But the important word that I got there, he should be brought to the judges. Is that word judges there? Anyone yep. could take the uh, Strong's Concordance or the Young's Concordance or any biblical lexicon and see that the word translated judges there is the word Elohim, the same word, Elohim. Really? Yeah, it's interesting. If you look at uh, Exodus 22.8, read that as well. Exodus if, 22.8. If the thief be not found, then the master of the house shall be brought unto the judges to see whether he have put his hand onto his neighbor's goods. See the word judges there again? Same word, Elohim. Uh, you don't, no one has to take a word for it. They can take a concordance and check up that word, and you see that the same word Elohim is translated. In those contexts, it is very clear. It's referring to judges. If you look at uh, 22.9 as well, uh, I think you read 28, 22.8. Did you read 22.9? For all manner of trespass, whether it be for ox, for ass, for sheep, for raiment, or for manner of lost thing, which another challengeth, it, challengeth to be his, the cause of both parties shall come before the judges. Same word, uh, Elohim. Uh, there's no difference there in, in Exodus 21, 6, Exodus 22, 8, Exodus 22, 9. And then another interesting reference is First Samuel chapter 2, verse uh, 25. If you will be kind to just read that as well. First Samuel chapter 2, verse 25. First Samuel 2, 25 reads, If one man sin against another... The judge shall judge him. If you a see man, that word judge, you see that word judge there? Yeah. It's the same word Elohim. In both cases, the same word Elohim. It, 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 uh, so what I'm trying to say is that when you come to Psalm chapter 82, uh, it really has to do um, with God speaking in a very sarcastic and uh, a very way, and a very um, satirical way to, to the judges. It's a psalm about a vision of, of judgment, uh, it kind of sets forth uh, in a very political and imaginative form the responsibility of earthly judges to the supreme judge of the universe. Uh, earthly judges are God's representatives, and they derive his, their authority from him. So they act in place of God. And, and God is taking a stand uh, in verse number one, and these gods, these judges, are standing before him in a solemn assembly, and he who has delegated the authority to judge, they, these judges now appear before God's tribunal in verse number one. In, in verse number two and four, you find that God sternly upbraids uh, these judges for the injustice and the partiality, and he bids them to remember that the, the duties of their office. If you just uh, would read that psalm, uh, Psalm 82, is it? Yeah, 82. Yeah. Could you read it? Yeah. God standeth in the congregation of the mighty; He judgeth among the judges, b- among the gods. How long? Did the word that judgeth among the gods. Mm-hmm. Again, that word can be tra- should be translated judges, and just because it's used in Exodus, in those references, Exodus chapter twenty-one, verse six; twenty-two, verse eight; twenty-two, verse nine; and then First Samuel chapter two, verse twenty-five. That same word. So it's talking here about God judging the earthly judges who have been put in a position to perform the duty of judging people and, ju- and administering justice. And then in verse number two uh, to four, notice how he upbraids them. Could you read that? How long will ye judge unjustly 
and accept the persons of the wicked, Selah. Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Rid them out of the hand of the wicked. Okay, so he's upbraiding them because they are not administering justice as they should. They're not being uh, impartial. Uh, they're actually, in a very way, they're being very biased and perhaps very nepotistic as well and showing favors to the rich and the wealthy and ignoring the poor and not giving justice. So here's God as judge arraigning these earthly judges who are given the position and authority to judge the people, taking the position. God is the, the, uh, the final judge of the universe, supreme judge of the universe, but he's delegated his authority to these judges. But rather than administer justice impartially and with equity, they're showing all kinds of favoritism, and they're practicing justice. And now he's arraigning them before himself. Uh, uh, and verse number five to seven, because they are incapable of reform, uh, the two things happen. The very foundation of society is being shaken uh, by their misconduct, and he wants them to know that in spite of the fact that they have this lofty title that they are, as gods, as it were, given the position of authority, they are just as mortal as anybody else, and they're going to face the same common end of all men. In other words, they're going to die. If you read verse 5 to 7, you see uh, how he expresses that. They know not, neither will they understand. They walk on in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are out of course. I have said ye are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. But ye shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. So he's saying to them, quite frankly, that, you know, in spite of this position, you've been delegated and you're acting as though you're God, so you can make decisions, that, and you're not fulfilling the role that I've assigned to you to practicing uh, justice and equity and doing it with impartiality. He's saying to them, look, you know, this lofty title you've got is not going to sh- uh, sh- um, protect you from your end, just like ordinary men are going to die. Just remember that you're going to die and you're going to stand before me and you're going to give a, a count of your, your stewardship. And then in verse number 8, uh, the psalmist concludes with a prayer that God himself will assume the governmental role of the world. That's what he says in verse number 8. Read that. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for thou shalt inherit all nations. Because of the failure of these judges, uh, the psalmist really is appealing. Uh, it's like the souls on the altar in the book of Revelations crying, How long, O Lord, before you come and administer justice and equity on our behalf? He's now pleading for God to assume that role because of the judgeship of these, uh, God, these judges who have been assigned the role of acting as, as in God's behalf in, in, in judging. Their failure uh, now prompts the, the psalmist to desire that God intervene and become the judge and take over the judgeship of planet Earth. So when you look at the psalm, psalmist really, this psalm, particular psalm, it really has to do with um, God as judge uh, holding earthly judges to come, reminding them of what their duties are, and as a result of their failure, assuring them that they're going to die like ordinary people and they're going to have to stand before God and given a account. And this provokes the psalmist to really plead for God's intervention uh, so that justice might be administered in the earth. So that's what this psalm is really about. It has nothing to do with Godship or we got uh, a spark of divinity in us that need to be fattened so that we can, you know, the New Age movement is that the problem is not sin, the problem is our ignorance. And the more we become enlightened, 
And the more we become, we reach a higher consciousness, we begin to understand that we're really true to the fact we're God. It's just that we, we just don't know it as yet. But eventually, when that enlightenment comes, we will then claim a place of God, etc. That's the whole New Age movement, and it's also infiltrated the Word of Faith movement that uh, emphasizes the Godhood of the believer. So we, we need to uh, interpret the Bible properly. And, you know, Brother Nathan, it doesn't take much for anybody to spend some time uh, checking up a concordance, checking up a word, how it is used. It would bring a lot of clarity and would stop all this confusion and all of this nonsense that uh, is being dissipated by people who don't spend the proper time exegeting the Word of God and, and trying to inform people on the correct biblical interpretation. The confusion today really has to do with the the, the principles of interpretation that are being applied to Scripture uh, are just alien to the standard method that is used, and consequently people are completely bamboozled by what they're told. And, of course, when somebody that has the collar and the cloak and the, all the repertoire of, of um, being a, a pastor it says something, it's almost uh, authentic. We are not like the Bereans who check things to discover whether these things are so. People just sit and soak in everything that's said without having a critical mind. But yet the Bible tells us we must test everything and examine everything. And that's where we need to uh, examine when people are doing these kind of teachings. Uh, we know that we have a sense that it is contrary to Scripture. That should push us to investigate uh, the, the, the passage and, and understand that there is a proper biblical interpretation once we spend the time to examine uh, its basic teaching. So if I'm understanding you right, that word gods in Psalm 82.6 would be better translated uh, judges. And if you read the context, it's very, very clear that's what it is. He's talking to the judges who are supposed to have administered justice with equity and with impartiality. So are you saying there's a mistake in the Bible? Pardon me? Are you no, saying I'm not saying it's a, a mistake. I'm saying it's a mistranslation. There's a difference between a mistake and a mistranslation. There are many things in the, in, in the King James Version, many things that needs uh, to be upgraded and updated that creates confusion in the minds of people. I can think of another one immediately uh, where it says... Um, he that hindereth will hinder, uh, and, uh, and that the word prevent uh, that is used in the book of Corinthians. Again, that word, the meaning has changed completely, and consequently people reading that, a uh, modern person picking that up and reading it, uh, is totally confused. But you take up a, 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 a version that is more up-to-date and more up-to-par, you will find that the clarity is, is clear, and as a result of that, it makes it much easier for people to understand the Bible. Look, we are not, this generation was not brought up on the King James, let's be very honest. Uh, and it's about time that we realize that we're dealing with a different generation. I'm not saying that we abandon the King James, I use the King James uh, in the pulpit, but we need to understand that if we're going to communicate the truth and the gospel uh, and the Word of God accurately, we have to speak to the generation that we are currently dealing with. We cannot be dealing with people who live in the 1611s. It's a different generation altogether. Just like Shakespeare. Who can understand Shakespeare or Chaucer? <laughs> uh, you, you must have a, some kind of a, a, a dictionary or some kind of um, index that explain words. Uh, so you could, you, you know, everybody that has done Chaucer or done Shakespeare would know that the words have changed. The King James Version was written in 1611. Language has changed. 
And I think sometimes we forget that the Greek language that is in the New Testament is Koine Greek. It is not classical Greek. As a matter of fact, it's the Greek of the uh, ordinary man in the streets. It, it, it was raw dialect. That's what it was. As a matter of fact, when it first discovered the, uh, the, 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 the language that is used, they thought it was some kind of a special heavenly language. And then when they're digging up all the garbage pits in the east and they discovered the Greek manuscripts and, 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 uh, and receipts and so on, they discovered, wait a minute, this was the ordinary language of the man in the streets. And that's what it is. It, it, it's just Koine Greek. It's just common vernacular language that the man in the streets would speak. Today, we don't speak Shakespearean. We don't speak the uh, 1611 uh, language. Uh, it's completely changed. And I, I, I wish sometimes that we would grow up and uh, understand that if we're going to communicate with the modern mind, we have to relate to a translation that they can grapple with and grasp and understand. And I think that as we're a, a modern translation, along with the King James, uh, is, is very, very helpful. And, and those who are King James only really uh, do great hurt, uh, in my judgment, to the cause of Christ by creating unnecessary division uh, on these issues. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. We're broadcasting from the island of Antigua on 1160 AM, 92.3 FM, and online at www.radiolighthouse.org. And also for this program, we are also on Facebook Live. Go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page, and you can... Join us via Facebook Live. You can comment your questions that way, or if you'd rather WhatsApp or text your questions, you can send them to 268-782-1454. Pastor, we had one other question that came in last week, but I think let's wait until next week to cover it. It was, uh, when God comes to separate the goats from the sheep, what difference is there between the two? The individual who sent that in, we are not ignoring your question. We will cover it at the beginning of the program next week as we start out next week's episode, Lord willing. But, Pastor, we have one that just came in uh, this evening, a WhatsApp from Antigua. The Pope has dropped the title, Vicar of Christ. Why is this important? Well, I, I think this Pope is a very unusual Pope. Uh, um I think uh, sometimes, uh, I think there within the Catholic movement, uh, an attempt really to kind of unseat him as well because he's, he's doing some things that are quite extraordinary. He's even uh, proposing, for example, that priests be able to get married. I don't even know that. But uh, but I, I don't know. That's unusual to, to, to really um, change that, that particular title. I, I, I haven't heard myself his reasoning behind it, but uh, I suppose he's bothered about the fact that he is as vicar is the one who acts as the substitute Christ. Uh, I suppose that might concern him at this point in time, and he's trying to be a revolutionary in terms of the Catholic Church. I don't know how much longer before the conservative group really has somehow um, uh, unseat him or, or do something to, to, uh, to discredit him, but he's doing a lot of things that is causing the the extreme traditionalist great concern, and this may be one of those things he's doing, changing the title. Um, uh, I, 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 I wish I could give you a better answer than that. Uh, I, I think it's a good thing that he's not uh, he's relinquishing that title because it has certain connotations in terms of um, his 
role, speaking ex cathedral, speaking infallibly, because he is the vicar of Christ. Maybe it's going to lead to the denial of papal infallibility as well, which would be a good thing, because if you read the, 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 the popes in the past, they contradict each other, but yet they're all supposed to be infallible. Maybe the reality is now beginning to send with the Catholic Church, and maybe there may be some kind of real change, which I don't know how long that will continue, because uh, Luther couldn't change the Catholic Church, and, and, and nobody's been able to change it, because it, it's, it's grounded in certain traditional doctrines that uh, are the very foundation of the Church itself. And to surrender some of these teachings is to undermine the very credibility of, of those who've gone before. So he might be in more trouble than he thinks, and I would not be as surprised if something is afoot, uh, even as I speak to try to somehow uh, dismantle or undermine his authority in, in some way, not how it's going to be done. But uh, don't forget that popes have murdered popes and poisoned popes, and, uh, you know, the whole history of popery is one mishmash of history that is shocking. And if, when you read about it, you, you wonder how these men have ever uh, the men would, would believe that there's such a thing as uh, the perpetuation of the pope of Peter right down the line. Because some of these men certainly were very, very unlike Christ, and very, very perverted, very, very corrupt, and they sold their office. Uh, it's a political, whole, whole big political mess. Uh, those who might uh, doubt this, there is a book called The Life of the Popes, and uh, one should read it. But one would be shocked again and again to discover that these are men who claim to be of God, but they were so evil. Uh, in their practices, etc. Pastor, we have a WhatsApp question from Anguilla. It says, Good evening, Pastor. I know the Bible does not contradict itself, so please compare for me Mark 16.13 and Luke 24.33, and I'll read those in just Mark a minute. Mark 16.13 and Luke what? 24.33. Okay. And I'll read those as soon as yeah. I read the question here. It seems as if Luke, it seems as if in Luke that Cleopas and the others did not have to tell the eleven because they had already seen him and believed. So Mark sixteen thirteen says, and they went and told it unto the residue, neither believed they them. And Luke twenty four thirty three says, and they rose up the same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and found the eleven gathered together, and them that were with them. Look, I, uh, I'm, I'm familiar with the passage, but it's kind of vague in my mind at this point in time. I would rather, rather than give a, 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 a quick answer where I have to retract, because I need to examine the context of what, what, what particular stage. You know, our Lord appeared about seven times after, after his resurrection, I have to be very, very clear at what time that is. So I have to look at the harmony of the Gospels to see where that time frame fits in. And I don't want to jump the gun by giving an answer to to, you know, to, 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 to seem as though I, I have a full list of knowledge of everything the Bible says, and I can just give a quick answer. I would rather uh, exercise judgment on this matter and reserve, and uh, let me look at it and examine it much more carefully and give an answer, because I know there's no contradiction. Uh, there has to be an explanation, uh, because this is God's word we're dealing with, and I'm sure there's an explanation. If the person perceives a contradiction there, I want to unravel it, but let me do that next time, because I really can't answer it on, over, over the, uh, at this point in time without knowing all the details of what stage that occurred. 
Okay, I jotted that one down, so we will do that as a question at the beginning of next week's episode. We have a question, a Facebook message from Nevis that's come in tonight. Good night from Nevis. Great program as usual. I think this is where the Bible can be confusing sometimes, depending on what you're looking at. In a previous program, the pastor was talking about taking the Bible literally. My question tonight, when do you take the Bible literally? Do you have to take the Old Testament literally? If so, then we will all be found wanting, or do we take only the New Testament literally? No, look, um, I'm a literalist. And uh, I believe in the historical grammatical method of interpretation. Uh, when we talk about taking the Bible literally, you have to look at the genre, the language of the of the of the literature. For example, you can't there's take prophecy or what is called ap- apocalyptic literature. In the book of Ezekiel, the book of da- uh, book of Daniel, the book of Revelation. Clearly, it is, it's couched symbolic, a lot of symbolic language, but those symbols represent something concrete. So uh, you come to the poetic books. You can't interpret poetry like you interpret prose. I mean, there are metaphors, there's similes, there is uh, personification, uh, there is um, um, uh, there are different nuances in, in, in uh, allusions. Uh, there are metonymies, uh, the synecdoches. I mean, there are all of these different types of literary devices are used when it comes to poetry. For example, Psalm 82. That's poetry. David is, in, uh, in the psalmist there really, if you look at it very carefully, uh, you find that he's using highly elevated poetic language and a lot of imaginary form. For example, when he's talking about the verse four, verse four to seven, when he talks about the, the, the society being shaken by their misconduct. The language there really, if you look at it carefully in Psalm 82, he says um, in that passage, uh, all the foundation of the earth are out of course. What does that mean? He's using a physical language like an earthquake to shake the world. And he's saying the judges, because of their, 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 their abuse of their uh, use of their power to, to make some solid impartial judgments, they've shaken the very foundations of society. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about the, the, the consequences of judges uh, not making proper um, decisions and practicing partiality and, and, and uh, nepotism and uh, showing favor. That's what he's talking about. The whole thing is disrupted, society is disrupted, but notice the language that he uses there is poetic language. If you go to the Psalms, uh, you'll find that it's also God thundering. The voice of God is like thunder. You you read about, uh, you know, uh, if I can take the wings of a dove and fly into the, the ocean, etc., etc. All of that is poetic language, but we understand poetic language. When we read uh, poetry, we know that you have to have certain skills to interpret poetry. And that's why you go to college. Uh, those that do um, English in the state college. Uh, my son was there, and uh, you have to do a course in communication, you have to do a course in, in literature as well, and uh, you have to analyze uh, poems, and you, you're given all of these terms that you've got to be able to define and be able to acknowledge and, and recognize these things in the passage. So when it comes to poetry, it has to do with the kind of genre we're dealing with. Are we dealing with history? Are we dealing with prophecy? 
are we dealing with a narrative? Are we dealing with prose? Uh, what are we dealing with here? Uh, it all depends. Uh, parables, for example, when you, when you interpret parables again, the language of parables, you don't interpret parables that you would interpret a normal narrative section or historical section because there are certain principles of interpretation applied to the to, to, uh, to parables. And that is why you don't uh, make everything in the parable mean something. A parable teaches a core truth. Everything else is embellishment around that core truth. But you try to make everything that is in a parable mean something, you end up in total confusion. And that's why there are principles of interpreting parables. You have to know what those are. And by the way, could I say this, Brother Nathan? That's where people need to understand. And you have to study. You just can't take up the Bible and believe that you're a genius, you're, you're some kind of a, uh, a gifted uh, interpreter without having proper teaching and proper training. The Lord has, over the years, um, created Bible schools and colleges. Men have given years, 10, 20 years, sometimes even more than that, to study the Word, study the language. Uh, and and, and I, I think it is impertinent for people to think, I don't need I don't need Bible training. I don't need to be taught anything. You know, I'm only taught by the Lord. Uh, my answer to that is that God has given us a rich heritage of faith. And uh, I learn regularly from reading men of God who are deep men of God. Uh, I, I learn regularly from them, and they help me with my interpretation, et cetera, et cetera. And I think it is rude and impertinent uh, to ignore uh, the gifts that God has given to his church. Remember, one of those gifts of teaching. And uh, we are not the, the world doesn't end with us. There are people who came before us. And by the way, I don't mind saying this, some of the richest books you would ever read is not modern books. Some of the deepest books you would ever read uh, are not the modern books. You've got to read some of the old saints, especially Puritans. Uh, they had a, an enlightenment, a level of enlightenment that we are really pushing to them when it comes to biblical understanding because they were deep men. They were men that spent hours in prayer, hours in studying the scriptures. We are so busy dealing with superficial things that uh, we have very little depth in comparison to those men. Those men were giants. Uh, and I would say the person here doesn't mean when we talk about interpreting the Bible literally, you should interpret the Bible literally. But it depends on the genre of the, uh, of the kind of literature you find within the Bible. It has many different forms of literature in the Bible, including poetry, including prophecy, and prose, and, par and parables, and, and, uh, and proverbs as well. People make a mistake that, you know, take a proverb and grasp it. A proverb is a general saying that has a, a core principle. But some of those core principles are, are common sense principles. And some people can take them to extreme when it's a, a core principle that generally if applied, this is the result. But not in every case, uh, it means this is going to be the result. Again, you got to read the book of Ecclesiastes. another fascinating book that a lot of people misled uh, about. And people formed, like, like, for example, the, the Southern Adventists, they formed their doctrine of uh, soul sleep, their doctrine of annihilation, and et cetera, et cetera, based on passages in, in books like Ecclesiastes. And the Bible is progressive in its revelation. And they interpret the old by the new. You don't interpret the new by the old. There's more light given in the New Testament about things in the Old Testament. And this was important for a person to uh, use the New Testament to bring fuller light on what the Old Testament teaches because God has progressively revealed his truth us um, by giving more revelation and more revelation and, more, and of course the fullness of revelation came when Christ came uh, and the Holy Spirit was given uh, so that the church the disciples could give us the scriptures but pastor what about the verses in the law that talk about 
thou shalt stone those that are caught in the act of adultery. That was written to be literal, so yeah, why don't we take it that, literal? That, that is a straightforward narrative. That is not poetry. Uh, that, that is straightforward narrative. In the Old Testament, that was his sentence uh, under the law. And by the way, uh, let me just say this. If you read uh, Romans chapter 1, uh, the Bible says that you've got 19 sins that are mentioned there. And the Bible says all that do these sins are worthy of death. God hasn't changed his mind about sin, you know. It's just that the way God deals with sin is changed because of the death of Jesus Christ. But God is just as angry with a, a, a person who disrespects his mother and his father and curses his mother and father. Under the Old Testament law, that person should be stoned. That hasn't changed in terms of God's sentiments towards that person. Uh, that person is worthy of death because of a complete violation of dishonoring the parents. And uh, it's taken seriously by God. We have become nonchalant where we could do our most things, say, well, and it really doesn't matter because we are so loving today. But we must remember that God is first holy, uh, and that's why he's presented light first and then love. We have put love first, and then we don't even mention the light. But his, his feelings on sin hasn't changed. It's just that because of the death of Christ, his dealings with us, uh, his outlook on us, that he's willing to forgive us and pardon us, he's now dealing with us on the basis of grace, not on the basis of law or justice. None of us, if we got law and justice, would deserve anything other than death and hell and, and, and damnation. But because of the grace of God, which is God's unmerited favor, he acts uh, towards us in favor because Christ has paid the debt for all sin. <laughs> Think about that for just a moment, brother. For all sin. God wow. has died for human sin. There's not, another, there's not a sin that's not covered by Christ's death. And that's why God can forgive us because he has paid all that God requires, he is exhausted in taking the punishment on himself. And God now is able to deal with us freely. Sometimes we allow that grace and we abuse that grace. And, uh, you know, Paul warns about that, uh, not to use the grace of God uh, to practice lasciviousness and other things that are contrary to Scripture. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. Thank you to those who have sent in questions. We appreciate it. If you have a question, you can send a text or a WhatsApp to one 462 7420 Or you can send it via the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page, specifically the Facebook Live video feed. The name of the program is That's Truth. It's a live interactive call-in program on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. On this Tuesday evening, we are broadcasting from the island of Antigua on 1160 AM, 92.3 FM, and online at www.radiolighthouse.org. Time across the Eastern Caribbean is 8.05. Now, our, yeah, go ahead. I, I don't want to interject here. I want not to get into the program tonight, but let me just make another few comments here that just came to mind. You know, this is why, for example, all a lot of the major cults, that have come online, that people are now completely misled, were founded by people who were ignorant of both the Greek language and the Hebrew language. And their interpretation was so skewed because they dependent on the English version that they misled generation upon generations. Uh, you know, I, the, the, the Jehovah's Witness come to mind with Charles C. Russell. I mean, it's a court case where he swore he knew the Greek language. I mean, this is not something that any is any JW can find this out because of the court records. Uh, he claimed that he, he knew Greek and, and so on and so forth, and the pastor 
um, I think from Canada it was, that uh, uh, based in, and um, really uh, virtually called him a fool, and that he was ignorant and didn't know anything, and he took the man to court. And he, in, in the court case, it's there written. He was asked, do you know Greek language? And he said, yes, I know Greek language. The guy asked him, do you know the alphabet of the Greek language? He said, yes. And then they presented to him the alphabet. He didn't know alpha. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the man that founded the, the uh, Joe Witness movement. I mean, pure ignorance. And by the way, he, he, his, he founded it because he hated the doctrine of hell. That was his motivation. I mean, uh, go with Ellen G. White again. Uh, if I were to take some time to, to read some extracts from, from a book here called The White Light, to show you where she has deliberately, knowingly um, practiced uh, plagiarism, claiming that she received this from, from angels. When in 2005, I can show you exactly what she said she received from angels and exactly what the person writes. Uh, she actually stole the information. But this is a woman that founded the movement. It, 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 it's go back to Mormon, the Book of Mormon. Joseph Smith, another idiot again, uh, knows nothing about the scriptures. As a matter of fact, he said that Moroni gave him the Book of Mormon, which was written, uh, I think, in the fifth century. And he has in the Book of Mormon full chapters of the uh, the King James Version. And it wasn't even written until 1611. <laughs> I mean, this is where rationality has completely gone, and I don't think people are thinking. I'm just saying that to say this, that we have to be very, very careful because people have been misled, and it's very hard for those people now to come out of those movements, having invested so much of the time and the energy and the resources, to actually admit that this is fakery. Uh, it's not easy. It's very difficult. Uh, and uh, it's, it's tragic that these but people need to understand that, look, if a person doesn't understand the original languages, I, I would be very, very leery of a person starting a new movement who has no understanding of the Greek language or the Hebrew language. Because there are things that you can only understand by doing uh, a graph, take the text and do it grammatically, uh, understand words and sequence and tenses, et cetera, et cetera. And it's a tragedy that. Um, this has happened, but of course, most of these religions started in the 1800s. If you check the calendar of the 1800s, you check that the Jehovah's Witness, the, the Mormon movement, the Seventh-day Adventist, uh, the Theosophy movement, the um, Vasquez movement, you'll find that all of them were starting about the, 18, the 1830s, etc. That, that, that should say something. And now with all the enlightenment we have, all the knowledge we have, and the person don't have to be a, a Greek scholar or a Hebrew scholar these days to find out what the words mean and what the, what the words mean and the tenses. There are tools available to the average uh, English-speaking person that enables him to do a proper interpretation and to decide whether or not this interpretation is false or is correct. Uh, but people today are, I, I don't want to say they're lazy, uh, they're just not readers. They just would rather be sponges that soak up everything that somebody tells them rather than do some first-hand study and examine these things for themselves. In other words, we lack the Berean mentality that search the scriptures to find out if these things are so. That's part of the problem we face today. Well, that's very true. In fact, I was just reading a book this week about how smartphones have changed us, and he was quoting some studies that have been done on how reading habits, uh, when you're reading off of a phone or an electronic device, we 
are trained to read much faster and we don't read with the same level of accuracy and we we are don't have the patience to sit down and to study things out to the same degree that i agree with you we are very very shallow and the times have helped to uh accelerate that level of um, mediocrity that we have we, we we're not prepared to spend time really any depth uh to find out things for ourselves as well the internet has made it uh, easy for us to just rather do some research uh, ourselves. And then a hard copy. I love a hard copy, brother. I love to mark the book. I like to put notes on it. I like to draw lines to it, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you, I find it difficult to do that with the electronic system because, number one, I'm not in cahoots with it, to be honest with you. <laughs> uh, I, I try to, to use it as much as possible, but I don't have the same agility using these the, 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 this electronic equipment that they do the, the, the hard copy. That's why I love, I love a hard copy. If I get a hard copy, I would always prefer that. Uh, but we, we, uh, we really, the, the problem is there. And I hope that, you know, this time that we had here, we had some because of the virus, I hope it's given some people the time to really reflect and think. I hope some people start to do some reading, and et cetera, et cetera. And I, I hope that, if the Lord brings us through this and he, he, he raises his hand and uh, he shows us favor and things return to a, a level of normalcy, I hope we'll have some real change in people's lives and take life more seriously and, you know, family life, everything. I hope, I hope there's a change. I, I sincerely hope that even though I have some reserve uh, about whether or not it's, it's going to happen, but I still am hopeful that some change will take place. Pastor, we have a WhatsApp from Anguilla. Thank you to the individual who sent it in. It says, Good evening, Pastor. In Mark sixteen seven, why did Jesus specifically mention Peter's name? And that verse says, But go your way, tell his disciples and Peter that he goeth before you into Galilee. There well, shall ye see him, as yeah. he said unto you. Yeah, that's simple. That one is simple. Uh, maybe the person is not aware of it. But remember, T- Peter had denied the Lord. And uh, he needed a reassuring word. I mean, am I washed up now? I mean, imagine, put yourself in Peter's position. Three times, you're the one that said, go all, uh, run away, I will die with you. Yeah. You're the one that took off the sword and cut off the, the Malthus's ear. You're the one that is this macho man with this uh, fisherman mentality that you're, you're rough and tough and you know, you can have, and then suddenly you're put in a position where you're you're fearful for your life. And even a little girl, by the way, say you're one of them. You start cussing, and you deny the Lord, and then you you he's crucified. It dawns on you you've actually been part of this crucifixion. You didn't even stand up for him. Put yourself in that position. You're wondering, there's no hope for me. Uh, I've betrayed the Messiah. But our Lord is conscious of, of, of what Peter has done. And that's why he said, you tell Peter. In other words, Peter, you're going to get a second chance. And that's when our Lord met with him, and he said to him, Thou must tell me more than these. You remember the story? Yeah. Uh, et cetera, et cetera. But go and tell Peter, because I think Peter would have felt, and I would have felt the same way that, you know, <laughs> can, could, I have, could I have done worse than deny my Lord and deny that I know him? I mean, just think about that for just a moment. That's almost like a feeling that you have the unpardonable sin. And that's where I think he needs a reassuring word. You tell Peter. You know, he's going to want that I chose to leave. Because you remember he said he'd give Peter the keys. And Peter opened the door to the Jews in, in, in uh, Acts chapter 2. And then in Acts chapter 10, he opened the door to the Gentiles with Cornelius. Remember that? Uh, so he's given a second chance. And uh, thank God that 
he's a God of the second chance and the third chance and the fourth chance. And I think that was just a reassuring word to Peter that, you know, you might have done and you might feel as though it's all over for you, but I've got a job for you to do. And I, I, I'm big enough to forgive you and to pardon you and to put you in the forefront of this ministry. You're going to be in the vanguard of this ministry. You're going to lead uh, the disciples to a worldwide mission of, of carrying the gospel. So I think that's why um, Peter in particular was mentioned. That's very encouraging. I just was thinking for the individual who's sitting here listening tonight and says, even in these few weeks that we've been had a curfew and COVID-19 has been the top story in the world, I've made some choices, I've done some things that I regret. Remember, as Pastor just said, God is the God of second choices or second chances, and he is there to forgive and to uh, have a reconciled relationship with you. Nathan, let me say something else because some, one, one is leading to the other. You know, I just had a conversation. I, I can't disclose too much because I, I, I thought, you know, it's a private thing with an indi- a person from overseas uh, who called about a matter. And uh, I had to say to him, uh, to the person, I just remind, I said, you know, uh, sometimes you might feel as though it's too late for us to do something with our lives. And I said, go back to the book of Genesis. And you read that Enoch began to walk with God when he was 65. Hmm. That's, a, that's a shocking statement. When he was 65, Enoch begot his son, and his son, and then it said, and Enoch walked with God. I think about that for just a moment, because some people say, you know, I've, I've really ruined my, my, my time, my opportunities, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you know, what can God do with my life now? But I am reminding you that Enoch walked with God at uh, 65. Uh, Moses did his greatest work when he was over 80. Caleb at 80 said, give me this mountain. So I, I, I want to encourage those people who might have messed up big time to understand that uh, you're dealing with a God that is compassionate and merciful and gracious and who takes no delight in the death of the wicked, but asks the unrighteous man to forsake his thoughts and the wicked to forsake his ways and return unto him and he will abundantly pardon. That's the God we offer uh, to those uh, who are searching and seeking and who might have become distraught for their life. I am really glad that you have tuned into That's Truth on the Radio Lighthouse tonight. Our topic tonight is something that we have all felt at some time, and you can be in the middle of a room full of people and still feel it. It's something that many are feeling, especially during this COVID-19 curfew time. Tonight we're discussing loneliness. And Pastor, as we often do, let's start out by defining our terms. What do you mean when you say lonely? Well, I think a simple definition that people can probably relate to uh, without going to the psychological manual or some uh, classic dictionary. I think it simply can be stated that uh, loneliness really is a sense of state of sadness that comes from feeling alone or isolated or cut off from others. In other words, there's a sense of being disconnected from other people. And um, uh, you feel that you're destitute of sympathetic companionship, uh, the emotional baggage of of feeling out of touch with other humans and who don't seem to understand you or or not sympathetic towards your feeling. One of the things I would would is quite surprising that um, when you go into the Bible, for example, for Nathan, it's interesting that the word alone is found over 96 times in the Old Testament, in the Scriptures. Uh, and there are eight different Hebrew words to 
translate the word alone and seven different Greek words to translate the word alone. But rarely does the word alone in the Old Testament or the New Testament, rarely is it synonymous with our modern concept of, of lonely or, or, or loneliness. In fact, I was surprised to discover that the English word loneliness was only acquired in its present meaning about 120 years ago. And it did not even appear in any major dictionary until after the Second World War. Wow. In other words, loneliness uh, has only uh, reference to a, 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 a mental condition. It's a more recent thing, you know. So, but uh, I, I would say to you that it's really this sense of state of sadness that comes when you feel somewhat isolated or disconnected from people. Um, and I think you made it quite clear at the beginning where you can be in the midst of a crowd and still have this sense of being lonely. Um, so, it, you know, it's, it's, it's a matter of fact, you can become so lonely as an individual that you are pained to see other people smile and chat and laugh and go on in merry way with a sense of contentment. Uh, you can actually envy a person when you are in that state of loneliness. So that is a simple definition I think that people can identify with because I think we've all been there and I hopefully that is helpful to a person to get a grasp of what we're talking about. So if it was only added to the major dictionaries after World War II, yes. does that mean that this is like a modern phenomenon? It, it, yeah, it's more, it's more, yeah, when I say modern, it's 100, 120 years, because people never really, it never, you know, it's, a matter of, it's never described as a mental condition uh, until more recent times. So it is something that people are becoming more, not that it wasn't there before, but it wasn't felt that way. As a matter of fact, we got more people that live in the Earth, planet Earth today, but we got more lonely people than ever. That's a strange thing because you think by having company of people around, you would think that that would dissipate our sense of loneliness, but th that seems to be not true. People, for example, who live in urban centers uh, are far more lonely than people who live in urban regions because urban, the urban community is far more close. The rat race in the urban city uh, people don't connect, they do connect, it's very rapid and very pacey. There's not the time spent getting to know people, et cetera, et cetera. So the, the, the modern times have really augmented this problem of loneliness as becoming almost epidemic uh, in, in our day and our time. Is it possible to, like someone will have a chronic situation, is it possible to be chronically lonely? Yeah, uh, well, look, let's say all of us, have a sense of loneliness at some point in time. But the, the question there is that, you know, people who struggle with loneliness day in and day out uh, and who have very little sense of hope or relief, uh, they live under a kind of an ominous dark cloud that pours steady, uh, steady loneliness uh, on their heads, while other people living in sunshine, they're living under this great cloud. And so they lose their sense of, of, of well-being. And this chronic uh, loneliness that you're talking about uh, this continuous feeling of isolation and disconnect with others, um, it can be very, very painful for people, and even married people um, face this particular problem. But, it, it, you know, while everybody has a, a stint of loneliness, the problem is the one person who feels this chronic uh, overcast of, of loneliness that have to live in day in and day out. Um, you know, there's several reasons for that. Uh, they can, sometimes it's an organic problem. I can't emphasize too much that when you're dealing with issues 
as a counselor or even as a pastor, uh, you, you, you've got to make sure you don't overstep your boundaries because there are certain organic problems that create emotional issues that we have to, to get clear of the way. So that if we are not, we're not too sure where the problem is coming, one of the best things you can ever do if a person has a deep emotional psychotic problem is to let them get a medical test first to make sure that there's no organic cause. If there's no organic cause, then you can deal with the spiritual matter or the soul issue. But there are things that, uh, you know, that um, chemically balance uh, hormone issues as well can make people feel withdrawn, et cetera, et cetera. Then there are other, other things like, you know, feeling socially inept. Uh, a person that uh, has been wrongly socialized, that they've been brought up, they never got to, to meet people. Maybe uh, mommy or daddy was overprotective. Or, you know, I don't want you going next door because these kids might corrupt you or whatever it is. So you never learn the social skills to uh, to interact with people. And people who don't have social confidence find it difficult to relate with people. And that's part of the problem. That's why they feel lonely. The Bible says a man wants a friend must show himself a friend if he wants friends. <laughs> and that's a person true. who lacks social confidence will always be faced with loneliness because they never learn the, the social skills of interacting with people that don't feel comfortable talking to people. And then a lot of it too is, just, uh, you know, people like that were withdrawn, never got to meet other people, rub shoulders with others, never learned th th this confidence. You know, they have a very low self-esteem in terms of uh, comparing themselves with others. Oh, she is so outgoing. She's so effervescent or, you know, he seemed to have a handle and he is so socially confident. But look at me, I, I'm, I'm withdrawn and don't know how to talk to people, you know. And so that that sense of lacking, you know, your self-worth, you don't feel confident relating to people, so you tend to withdraw and that makes you more lonely. And then it's sometimes personal hurt. People be hurt deeply and decide they're not going to be hurt again. And so they, they withdraw. And, and, and that uh, acerbates the, the loneliness as well. Uh, or sometimes you might have done something really embarrassing in front of people. And every time you're in a social gathering, you're almost wondering who, who was there, who saw it, who can bring it up. And so what happened, you withdraw yourself. And again, you're only prolonging your loneliness. Um, and, you know, and then some people are like a porcupine personality. They never make you feel comfortable. You don't know in their presence if to sit, talk, uh, hold your pose, your P-shaped hands, whatever it is, you know. And so personality comes in there, but a lot of it has to do with the upbringing and the socializing that takes place within the home. You reference personalities. Now, some of us are more outgoing or less outgoing than others. Is there anything wrong with wanting alone time? Like you just sometimes feel like, you know what, I just need to be alone. I need, I, I don't need the busyness of other people's input and other people's thoughts? No, I, I think that um, we must not confuse uh, loneliness with wanting to be alone, to do different things altogether. I think all of us uh, should desire some kind of solitude where we spend some time sitting apart from other people. I think that's a good thing. Uh, so we must not, not, not let's not equate uh, being alone as synonymous with feeling lonely, et cetera, et cetera. You know, uh, Dr. Worsby in his book, Lonely People, Physical Lessons on Understanding and Overcoming Loneliness, he reminds us in that book, and I want to quote what he says. He said, Jesus used uh, to go out uh, by himself to meditate and pray. The Apostle Paul left his friends and companions and sent them ahead by ship while he himself walked to meditate and to be alone with God. That's a fascinating observation. 
And Nathan, if you were to look at uh, just Luke chapter 4, verse 20, 42, uh, in connection with our Lord, Luke 4, 42. Luke 4, 42 says, And when it was day, he departed and went into a desert place, and people sought him and came unto him and stayed him, and he should, that he should not depart from them. Yeah, but notice that he went out into a desert place by himself. He got away from people. You know, people that it can exhaust you, you know, trying to minister. I can tell you this, but a lot of people may not know this. Listening is an art. Hmm. It's very, very difficult uh, when you're counseling people, for example. You, you've got to listen sometimes to hours, and you, they haven't actually, they give you all this peripheral data, all this halo data that has nothing to do with the problem, because they're trying to feel you out to see, if I, can I trust them with this information? So sometimes you're there listening for two hours, and you're trying to figure out what exactly is the problem here. And it's only after a period of time that you begin to get a, a, a vague outline of what the real issue is. But they're not going to come on and say, well, this is the problem, right? And, um, but um, it's constant and very lonely thing as well, because people tell you things in confidence that you can't repeat. And sometimes there's a heavy burden on your soul because you just wish you could reflect that on somebody to get their opinion. But you 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 pledge that you're dealing with incompetence, and therefore you've got to be very very careful. Now, of course, to help other people who are be going through a similar thing, you can speak in terms of generalities. But you don't have to call names, et cetera, et cetera, because it's something that's helpful. You think it's helpful, but you've got to be very very careful. You don't identify people, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, look at Luke six twelve again, and there was another incident there with our Lord. Luke 6.12 says, And it came to pass in those days that he went out into a mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. Okay. He got away from people. I know it's good to have uh, congregational prayer. It's good to have people when we come together uh, in the moment of crisis to pray. I am not against that. But to be honest with you, more the more serious prayer and the most meaningful prayer, that which is done in the closet, that which is done in isolation. Uh, where people can't hear you, people can't see you. You can say what you want to say and not be careful how you articulate what you're praying about. I think that is when real prayer takes place. Uh, when you're in a prayer meeting and you're praying and you're praying aloud, you know, you, 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 you're thinking of your grammar sometimes, you're thinking they're putting it the wrong way. And seriously, all of these things could occupy your mind to the point where you're just uttering words, you're not really, you, your, your mind is not fully focused. And I think when you get alone, you're not worried about who's listening to what you're saying. You can groan once, you can cry once, you can say what you want to say. Uh, and I think that is what we're afraid. And then look at Matthew chapter 14, verse 22 to 23. Matthew 14, 22, 22 to, to 23. 23 yeah. And straightway, Jesus constrained his disciples to get into a ship and to go before him onto the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when the evening was come, he was there alone. See that word? I mean, now think about this uh, for just a moment, Nathan. I mean, you know, as I said, it's only when you ponder words like that. Here is God the Son. He is incarnated as a man. He's living as a man. Uh, He doesn't depend on his divine powers to help himself. The only time Christ ever exercised divine powers is to help other people. You never find he ever uses his divine prerogative to help himself. He's living a life totally 
dependent on God the Father, and of course, he had the indwelling Holy Spirit. But he sees, if there's one person you would think the one needs prayer, would be he, don't you think? Yeah. But to him, prayer was the essential thing. Ministering was important, of course. But in order to, to recharge the battery to be able to minister, he has to get along with God to recharge the battery. The problem with us today is that we are active. We don't have this alone time. And the reason for that is, to be very honest with you, we believe in our, our resources. We believe that we're capable. Uh, our sense of dependency is in our abilities. Uh, our Lord was different. He knew that without the Father, he could do nothing. And as the passage of Scripture, he says, just as I uh, live by my Father, he says, even so you must live by me. When I think about those verses and how he was so dependent on his father and, and had this communion with his father so regularly, uh, I am ashamed and embarrassed uh, to think about that closeness and that sense of dependence on the father. And I look at my own self, and I really, really am shocked and ashamed that uh, so much of confidence uh, is self-dependence. That is a, a, something that we should rattle us to the very core of our being. And I hope it does when we look at this whole matter. But here he is, and he goes out, he prays, on, and he's come back and he's found alone. And he deliberately chose this path of sending the disciples away. He didn't just tell us, come, let's go and have a prayer meeting. But he said, you go ahead. See, I need to pray to God because that's what religion is. What I am with God is what religion is. And uh, this is so important. But coming back to the whole question of um, solitude and this whole matter of being alone, I think it's a healthy thing to separate from people sometimes. And I think it's needful. I think it's needful uh, as a refuge from the noise and the negativity that's around us. Sometimes the news, I just, you know, I'm a, I'm a news listener, but there are times when I get so exasperated by the news, so overwhelmed by all these negative things that. You know, you, you just wish that it could just be tuned out. I think sometimes we need that. Sometimes the noise. I, I got a, a neighbor who, uh, you know, the, the the music. I mean, gosh, you know, they don't play for themselves. They play for the whole neighborhood. <laughs> uh, I think sometimes we need to, to get away from all of this this kind of noise. It's a place of privacy and quietness where we can sort out our ideas and our values and our attitudes. It's a haven where we can grapple with our unhealthy emotions that we sometimes. Um, have gripped us, so we need to really uh, come to come to grips with it. It's a positive time alone when we uh, can become um, uh, not preoccupied with others, but uh, focused uh, completely on God. And then it's a time where we shelter from the storms and we try to handle any significant uh, loss that we might have had, and we haven't been able to have enough time to grieve or even weigh what it really means and the impact it's had. And then I think it's a personal retreat where we find the pump for our creativity. And, you know, it, it's, it's interesting that I hope we've come to that uh, when we deal with the, the what we can do during kind of loneliness. But some of the more creative writings that Paul wrote were when he was in a lonely prison. As a matter of fact, we would not have had the pastoral epistles had Paul not been in prison in a lonely place when everybody had forsaken him. But yet he used that uh, to be productive and to be creative. And sometimes it's the, the, the that 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 time alone uh, pulls out what we have so latent within us that we may not even know what we have there. Sometimes people write poetry uh, in these moments of loneliness, and the, the gift of expression 
just froze. But they never knew it was there until they found themselves in a situation where they were almost in prison in a lonely state, and then it actually begins to ooze out, out of the pen. I think that there's a moment of, uh, where we could find uh, our creativity, and then, of course, there's a private sanctuary where we can rest and we can pray, we can meditate, and we can reflect on the things of God. So to answer your question, I think it's a healthy practice uh, to get alone from everybody else, spend some quiet time. I think it is, uh, can really be beneficial uh, to all of us. Pastor, we have two questions that have come in. Uh, the first one is a text message from St. Kitts. Good night, Pastor. What is meant by dispensation? Explain and give an example. Well, dispensation really is a term that is used uh, to describe different periods of time uh, of God dealing with mankind, where God gives some kind of revelation, made some kind of a demand, and um, depending on whether there was a success or failure, for example, uh, there are normally several dispensations that are recognized by Bible scholars. For example, there is the dispensation of innocence. That's a time when there was no sin. And Adam was given a, a, a revelation, be fruitful and multiply. Um, he was also tested in regards to the, the, the tree. You shouldn't eat of the, the, uh, the forbidden tree. That's a dispensation of innocence. Then the dispensation of law, and not going in order, uh, I could mention after the dispensation is in innocence when man fell and was disobedient, and that dispensation was over. Innocence is over, man is not. It's not a dispensation of conscience, where there's no law, like the Ten Commandments given, and man is living uh, by his conscience. Uh, and again, there's a dispensation of government. And what I mean by that is that for the first time in Genesis chapter 9, man is now given the authority to take human life. If a man kills another man, you know, we are not given the authority to take that man's life. That's a capital offense. And the reason is given because man is made in the image of God. Now, people turn that whole thing around and say we should kill them because man is made in the image of God. But God's argument is because man is made in my image and you kill a man, you ought to forfeit your life. So they turn everything around and uh, it's, it's just completely inversion of, of values today. And then it's just a of law where um, God gave man the Ten Commandments and expected to the certain uh, obedience would bring blessing and disobedience would bring curse. And then, of course, we got the dissertation of grace where God is no longer dealing with us under the old covenant of law. We're now dealing with under, under, under the covenant of grace and favor because of the death of Jesus Christ. Then after that, of course, you're going to have the dispensation of the tribulation. Then you got the dispensation of the millennium. In other words, there are different periods of time that God, it's called the ages in the book of um, the book of Hebrews. It has to do with different administrations, period of time that God dealt with man at different periods of time. I don't know that it's helpful. We could probably do a program on dispensation sometimes. They put a note there where we can actually go to um, see what the test was, what the failure was, what the consequences were. And we can begin to recognize this position. By the way, I think it's important to understand uh, by the prophecy that you have a grasp of biblical dispensations. Uh, that is why we believe in the, the, the rapture. That's why we believe in the revelation. That's why we believe in the millennium. That's why we believe in the, the eternal kingdom. That's why, you know, all of these are different stages. And that's why we don't believe that God is finished with Israel. Uh, because... Um, the Bible is very, very clear that Israel at this point in time is judicially blinded by God in unbelief. But the Bible makes it 
clear as well in the book of Romans 9, 10, and 11 that the day is coming when the veil will be lifted off Israel's eyes and God will grasp Israel back into his plan. That's when the church is really raptured and now God takes back to dealing with Israel. And of course, as we said when we did prophecy, that the Lord uh, in uh, Luke, we're told that Jesus Christ will sit on the throne of David. He never sat on the throne of David, but that's a prophetic promise. He will only sit on the throne of David during the millennial kingdom, where he sets up his kingdom on planet Earth and rules on Jerusalem. That's a prophetic writing. We don't believe that that is a figurative thing that takes place in heaven where Jesus ascended. He's ruling on Earth, the kingdom of David. And David's kingdom is an earthly kingdom, not a heavenly kingdom. So um, dispensations are important, and I hope um, that we can do a more exhaustive look at this subject, because it might be interesting for those who are listening uh, to appreciate the 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 dispensational view of the scriptures. Of course, there are two main views today: the, the covenantal view and there's the dispensational view. Those who interpret Bible by different covenants, um, and uh, those that normally practice covenant theology are what we call Reformed theologians. And generally speaking, they are skewed on Bible prophecy. They don't believe this one millennium. They believe in our millennialism. They believe that this is the church age. They don't. And it's such a, a difference between what they believe about prophecy and what we believe. So, uh, but that I hope that helps the listener. If I'm as clear as mud, next time I'll be much clearer. <laughs> uh, Pastor, another question: a WhatsApp from Saint Martin. Can a person who does not associate with people become depressed? And then the second sentence that comes with their question: Alzheimer's takes over the mind and act very strange. That, that, that is normal. Uh, you know, we are social beings. Don't ever forget that. And it's the first time God ever said it was not good is when he said it's not good for man to be alone. Think about that for just a moment. Mm. Everything he created, he said it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. But when it came to man, he said it for the first time it's not good for man. And then he created another human being that could relate to Adam. Uh, he's called a person suitable to Adam or somebody who corresponds to Adam. We use the word help me, that's the word there. But clearly, uh, Adam had the animals, he had nature, I suppose, uh, Italy, paradise, a utopia. I cannot imagine a more beautiful place than the Garden of Eden. So you've got all the animals, all these lovely trees, and in addition to that, you have communion with God. But yet, there's a, an aloneness in Adam that could only be met by another human being who was a woman and not a man. <laughs> besides that. But uh, if people uh, get away from people, uh, loneliness, uh, generally speaking, puts you out of touch with, with reality. And because we are relational beings, uh, it affects us emotionally, and we can become very, very, very depressed, uh, very, 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 very sad uh, as a result of it. And uh, so I would say to that person, definitely, uh, no question about it. People who withdraw themselves from other people and out of contact with other people um, put themselves in a wall, build a wall around themselves. And even if you put people, by, by the way, one of the worst things you could ever do with a prisoner is putting in isolation. Yeah. You'd rather anything in the world give him a few licks to the road or increase his sentence, but to put him in a month of isolation where he can't hear anybody, can't see anybody, that's like putting a man in. That's the worst condition. They'll tell you that again and again and again. And by the way, that's one of the, the tools that they use when they want to break people's will, this isolation. So clearly, uh, the, those who practice um, um, 
trying to make people talk, uh, term that is used there. Torture? Uh, torture. Well, I don't call it torture because I, I believe that if you were in a war, you need information. If you're going to, you know, if you're going to have to do those kind of things to get one man to talk, you save 20,000 lives, what are you going to do? Uh, you're dealing with war. And, and, and therefore, I think that is pretty much legitimate as far as I'm concerned in these matters. I think uh, waterboarding, as far as I'm concerned, it's all nothing but it. The person didn't die. But these terrorists kill people with bombs, so why, why are we so worried about these kind of things? Anyhow, that's another thing altogether. But to answer the, 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 the question from the person, yes, um, I believe when you get isolated from individuals, you suffer from depression, anxiety, uh, and, and you get all these kind of mood swings, because we are social beings created to be able to relate to each other. And there's not a wise person uh, who think they can live as a lone ranger. Even a lone ranger needed Tonto, and uh, we need others. And that's why we are called the body of Christ. And that's why the Bible emphasizes and sees the church not as an isolated entity, but one where there are members who are like a part of the body. We need each other. So what about for the individual who says, but pastor, I really believe that God has given me the gift of being single. I don't have that desire to be married. He's given me a ministry that really is only uh, feasible or most feasible uh, as a single individual. Are you? No, no, no I'm not. No, let me tell you, there's no, there's no disparity between what I said and what you just said there, because you're not dealing with the, the gift of singleness. We're talking about somebody who isolates themselves from people. This is too different. I can be single and feel that I don't need a partner in life because God has given me a gift of celibacy and still have intercourse. With people, when I say intercourse, I don't talk to the people and relate to the people. Right. So I don't see any any kind of disparity between that and a person who is given the gift of uh, to, to live a single life. I think a single life can be very productive, but I don't think that many people are given that gift because it's very, very clear in the Bible that the normal thing is for a person to be married. Uh, it's very, very clear. But there are people, uh, our Lord spoke to this matter in, I think, one of the Gospels where he said that some people are born eunuchs. Some people make themselves eunuchs, and some people are made eunuchs by men. Uh, so knowing that they're born, they're born with a gift. They're given that gift, uh, where they don't need a companion. And there's, you know, uh, I, I need a companion. I, if I, you know, the wife forbid that my wife should die tomorrow, but uh, I could see myself be married if my wife would die. And I hope she would feel the same way as well, because I wasn't, I wasn't given that gift to live uh, by myself. I need, uh, I need a companion. But some people do have that gift. But that doesn't mean that they isolate themselves. They can still minister effectively. Uh, and uh, so the difference between giving the gift of uh, uh, single life and loneliness, those people who are given that gift of singleness are not lonely people. They're very happy people, and they feel very, very competent and very, very at ease uh, in, in, in this matter. So I, I don't think the two, two, two of them are, are different things altogether. Is it a jump, or am I connecting dots that shouldn't be connected to say that it's possible that a person with Alzheimer's, where their mind is just disconnected from reality, that they become very lonely? Yeah, but don't forget that Alzheimer's, so far as I know, is an organic disease. Okay. Uh, the person did not bring it upon themselves by isolating uh, themselves. That's not, that's not what happened. The person pretty much isolates themselves because the disease is there. And they don't feel comfortable with other people uh, because the effect is having, you're shaking, you can't remember certain things, it's kind of embarrassing. So 
So I don't think that, that is, uh, that's what we're talking about. I, I feel that you got to understand we're dealing with a disease, we're dealing with something that's organic. You're not dealing with something the person brought upon themselves. However, it can be uh, exacerbated by, uh, rather than connecting with people, you withdraw yourself. And most of the time, you withdraw it because you don't feel confident, you don't feel, you don't want to be a burden to people, you don't want people maybe even laughing at you, asking you questions all the time. I can understand that. But uh, you've got to realize that, you know, look, sometimes what I don't understand within the Caribbean context, Nathan, uh, let me say this. We can deal with physical problems. When a person gets his hand cut off or a person gets called in or a person gets in an accident and they lost their eye or they got scars over their body, it, 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 you know, we could deal with that. But somehow when it's a mental issue in the Caribbean, it, it, it's like a different thing you're dealing with. They've got people who, when their child is born with a mental problem, they don't let them come up the house. They're locked up in a bedroom. You know, when friends come and uh, to the house, the child never is allowed to come out because the family is embarrassed. That is a Caribbean problem, right? I see people in America, for example, or I see guys who don't have hands and don't have feet, but want to live a normal life. They're not going to stay in a room and be cooped up. And they've got visions and dreams. They've got someone who are uh, speakers, inspirational speakers. <laughs> I mean, it's amazing when I see these kind of people. I, I just am awed by them. And I'm saying that there are people that are not even half that um, handicap in the Caribbean who have given up on life. Families have given up on them. And I wonder where, where they don't see the inspiration that comes. You know, these guys, their hands got cut off, they still want to drive. They're not going to stay and want you to drive them all over the place because they want to be independent. Somehow, we haven't reached that level of... Uh, sophistication, uh, that level of, of, of freedom and liberty and uh, self, self-confidence that is something like this happens to us. It doesn't mean the end of the world. We, we make the best of what is there and, and, and do the best that we can, you know. Uh, it's just a different, living in a different world and, and maybe over time being exposed to these different um, individuals and see how they've been able to rise above the uh, incapacity uh, and make something of themselves and become really inspirational models. Maybe we'll have some of those in the Caribbean in the future, but it's sadly lacking today. Pastor, here's a good question. It's referencing something you said last week. Pastor Murphy, last week you were talking about how the Catholic Church has often made Mary an idol because they have statues of her. But don't your churches have crosses consistently have crosses consistently in the building or outside of a building to symbolize that it's a church is that not an idol no that's not an idol we don't bow down to idols to, to, to a cross we don't put uh the sign of the cross they go to the cross that's a recognition of the death of christ uh, if we thought it was an idol or it was offensive to people who really really felt it was we were practicing idolatry i could tell you that we would remove it but nobody in our church uh, ever feels any special reverential awe to any cross that we have on the building or inside the building. It's just that we hope that when people come and they're listening to the sermon, their mind might focus on, on Christ and the cross. So I think it's two different things altogether. In the case of Mary, you're praying to Mary. Uh, you, you, she's almost, as I said before, elevated to the point where she's the co-redemptive of Christ. She's the co-mediated with Christ. She's the queen of, of heaven. 
you you pray to her who goes to Jesus to get your prayer answered. So you bypass. I mean, quite frankly, you've, you've done away with what Christ was, came for. He came as a man that he might be a sympathetic high priest who respected all points as we are and, and who understands us. That's why he became a man. Now we've completely removed that and put a level in between us and Christ, uh, completely destroying the whole purpose of the incarnation. So there's a, a complete difference in these, these kind of these kind of things, uh, and I think it's a, 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 a false analogy to be using uh, the fact that you have a cross uh, to, to, to compare that with the statue of Mary or the adoration and worship and reverence that is shown to Mary. Nobody shows reverence to, to the cross, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and uh, you know bow before it or. It's just a symbol that is designed to remind people, especially people who are not saved, of the Christ's death and the cross. That's all it is. But what would you say to those who claim that their statues of Mary or their images of Mary are just a symbol? You claim the cross as a symbol, they claim Mary as a symbol. Yeah, but Mary is a symbol. Uh, you're using a human symbol. You're using you're using some some uh, something that represents uh, the actual image. And by the way, she looks nothing what she what they make her to be. Uh, she is a Westernized European, and I guarantee you that that's not what both Mary was. So it's a false image. But uh, again, we, we're told very clearly that we're not to make any images to bow down to those images. The cross. I do not know. This is the first I've heard anybody suggest that the cross is an image where people uh, somehow worship some kind of idolatry. First time I'm hearing that, I, I think it might be a cop-out for those who want to continue the practice of adoration to Mary and reverence to Mary. But there's no question that Mariology is idolatry, no question about that at all. Anybody that knows what is practiced and, uh, and reads some of the, the prayers to Mary, it, it, you, you read it and you cringe. You wonder how in the world can people today be saying prayers like that and got an open Bible it's shocking. It's really, really shocking. It's, it is something that um, I find it difficult to comprehend without thinking there's some infernal agency behind it that's been able to coerce people to practice these things with, with an open Bible that clearly contradicts us praying to anybody but God. It's it just, it just one of those things where I think the, 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 the Catholic Church has done enormous injury to the faith of people who are depending on these prayers and who say the rosary faithfully every every day, et cetera, et cetera. Then to discover in that day, it, it was really, really uh, disapproved by God. I think that is going to be the shocking discovery. Pastor, we have a WhatsApp question from Antigua. Good night, gentlemen. Is Pastor Mur to Pastor Murphy, is it okay for a divorced person to remarry if they are experiencing loneliness? So I, my view on, on divorce is very, uh, I, I believe it's biblical. Um, some people disagree with me on it, and I think every person has a right to, you know, I, I believe from Scripture there are only two biblical grounds to divorce. I believe the adultery. I don't believe that because adultery has been committed, let me be very clear, that they should follow naturally divorce. I think there should be opportunity there for forgiveness, and to try to rebuild the marriage, rebuild trust. I think that should be the first recourse in every case. God hates divorce, no question about that. And God will is that a marriage be permanent. And there's no question about that. But um, things happen. We are sinful beings, and God, uh, our Lord has given that except for um, 
adultery or fornication. The other one, of course, is, is abandonment. Paul deals with this in Corinthians 7. Now, Paul says, what I'm saying to you, the Lord did not speak about. In other words, <coughs> the Apostle Paul is not saying, this is my own personal advice. The Apostle said, in the case of dealing with the Lord, Jesus never covered that. And then he, the, uh, remember the scripture is inspired by God, the Holy Spirit uh, gave the New Testament writers what God wanted to put in the book. And, and Paul makes it quite clear that if an unbeliever uh, abandons uh, the partner, um, the, belie- the believer is not bound, same word, bound in bondage under law. Uh, she's free. And I believe that that gives the right for uh, abandonment. When a person uh, married to somebody here in Antigua, by the way, this has happened to uh, one person that I know, a very, I can't call him a very good friend, but a friend of mine uh, who was teaching the Bible college in the Caribbean, and uh, his wife just one day got up and flew away and went to the States, started back on the marriage. Uh, he did nothing to offend her, uh, but she just, I guess the life in America, and if I tell you what island she was from, etc., maybe you would understand why she would have gone to that course. But again, here he is, uh, a young man, abandoned by his wife. She goes up there, and uh, if I were in his case, I would not pursue remarriage at this point in time. I would wait uh, to see if there's be any kind of healing, or if there is, which would normally happen, eventual uh, adultery or, <coughs> or, or or remarriage then I'd be free to, to do that. But I think divorce and abandonment. Um, now, to answer the question, I only believe the innocent party in the divorce has a right to remarry. I would not marry a person that would say to me, Pastor, you know, I, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the guilty person. I'm, the, I'm really responsible for this marriage, and disintegrating, and, and et cetera, et cetera. I, I, I personally would have <laughs> misgivings of marrying a person uh, like that. If a person on the other hand is said, Pastor, <laughs> I did everything in my power to save my marriage, and if I can do some investigation, discover it's true, and uh, really took my person out of fault, the other person just <laughs> wanted out of the relationship, and it got off into other relationships, <laughs> I would not remarry that person. So I would ask the person the question, <laughs> are you guilty? Are you the innocent party? Uh, I think if you're the innocent party and there has been adultery or abandonment, um, I think you have legitimate difficult grounds for divorce. If you're the guilty party, um, I would suggest to you that you ought to ask God to give you the gift of celibacy. And as difficult as it might be, uh, I would think in obedience to God, either pray for the restoration of your marriage as a person, but. Uh, as long as there's a guilty person there, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not comfortable as a pastor to perform that wedding. Other people might do it, but I certainly would not. Pastor, as you were talking earlier, uh, going back to the topic of loneliness here in the last minute of the program, you were talking about how it's okay to seek that time alone and especially to meditate on God's Word. Psalm 46.10 came to my mind. It says, Be still and know that I am God. I was probably, well, let's say about 23 years old before that verse was brought to my attention or where it really sunk in. And I was so busy on just being busy, 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 even some things busy about ministry. But there is a time, there is a place to be still and to know that he is God. Would you agree with that? 
Oh, most definitely going to be. And I think that this is a plan that we are going to now with this uh, virus. But I, I really, really think that um, people have an opportunity to evaluate what life is all about. As I said before in another program, we can lose everything in a moment's time. Uh, what we think is normal could just be snatched away from us so suddenly. And then there's always the specter of death that um, is, is, is staring every one of us in the face at some point in time. That should make us want to get along with God. And we ought to just, uh, you know, just calm ourselves down and let God be God and see what He's doing in our lives and, and how He's reshaping our thinking. Uh, and I think we need, rather than try to uh, do things on our own and push things the way we want to, uh, just sit back and let God work and just watch God work and see what marvels He will do. Thank you for joining us tonight for That's Truth. Be sure you join us next week as we continue this topic of loneliness and discuss how the Christian should deal with loneliness, especially during these times of isolation with COVID-19. Have a blessed night. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth, Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kilohertz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.